Welcome to Coffee with Curtis, your home for quality business conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the podcast. Joining me this time is brand strategy expert and storyteller, Guy Gordon. If you love the Irish accent, then stay tuned. Guy and I chat about his brand therapy methods, the campaigns he's loved working on and why they were successful, as well as the projects he'd say no to, the power of personal branding in humanizing business, what it was like for him working at big name companies like Saatchi and Amazon, and much, much more. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Here's the podcast. Guy Gordon, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Good morning. How are you? I am excited because I think we're going to have a fabulous conversation. I, I sort of think that we created this moment on a whim in some LinkedIn comment chat moment and um, you you were sort of wanting to make the leap from doing all of your great LinkedIn posting to um, being visual going on video so what was the what was the inspiration the inspiration for taking up your latest challenge and agreeing to appear on camera exactly um <laughs> I feel like your your challenger I think we should I probably am. give the audience some some context of our conversation a couple of years ago. What happened? <laughs> um, what happened? Well, we've known each other for, we knew each other a little bit longer than that. I think we met like 2018, 19, um, like around a, uh, around a client I was working with. And yeah, we, we met proper, proper uh, end of 2020. COVID year. And uh, I remember the year had started out quite well for me and my uh, creative partner at the time. But then things sort of dried up and got quite quiet by the end of the year. I was beginning to get a little bit panicky. Pipeline was driving, was drying up. And um, I think we had, we had a Zoom and I told you about this and you suggested that I start posting on LinkedIn which for me was like a terrifying prospect, put myself and my ideas out there sort of in the, in the court of public opinion. But um, you didn't just like say it to me, you actually gave me a specific challenge, which really helped to sort of crystallize it. And you challenged me, it was like a 30 day challenge, post something every day for a month. And you sort of dared me to come back to you and tell you that things weren't looking up in some way, shape or form by the end of it. Um, and I owe you a huge debt of gratitude, as I've told you many times, and I'll embarrass your our listeners by thanking you again. So that was really, that was, (laughs) that was sort of one frontier that I broke through and I've sort of the written word is my, is my safe space. And it's where I enjoy to express myself most. Um, And appearing on camera definitely is not. So yeah, it was, it was some random comment somebody made on a comment that I left on a post. And I said, Oh no, you know what you mean? Break the fourth frontier and go on camera. And you had perfect timing and you jumped in and said, hey, why don't you come onto my podcast or you are coming on my podcast (laughs) next week. And I was like, well, thank you. You know, thank you for making it a bit easier. Well, I'm very glad that you're here and we're going to chat all things brand strategy, business and all sorts of other things that I want to offer to our, our listeners. I think it's interesting what you say about the LinkedIn challenge. I mean, LinkedIn for me for many, many years now has just been this incredible source of giving value, personal branding, company branding, um, an amazing source of clients. I mean, Simon and I have built Pipe, no no word of a lie, probably 95% as a result of LinkedIn, whether it's clients coming through DM, seeing our work, understanding our reputation. And I think what I saw with you on that 30-day challenge was you are very consistent when you want to be, and you kept to it, like, rigidly. Um, and you must have that discipline strand in, in, your, in your DNA that I actually don't have and uh, I'm quite envious of. Um, but I think what you said about the written word is really important. People should do this type of outreach in the format that they feel most comfortable so for you, the written word is, is you know, really your, your go-to. That's how you express yourself. And you've done it 
brilliantly and i'm enjoying all of the new posts that are coming out and some of the so I, I see you've elevated it as well there's a lot more um visual <laughs> with it as well and decks and presentations and links um but i think i think trying to break the barrier in new things like coming on video um like i said in my comment who can withstand an irish accent it's a disappointingly diluted irish accent for probably many of our listeners um yeah, I was born and raised in in Dublin, went to university in London, um, and I moved to Israel at the age of 22. So I've lived um, <clears throat> now, fortunately, comfortably over half of my life um, here. So yeah, now that, I, now that you've outed me as being an Irishman, everybody can hear my Irish accent. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely something that I've tried to get to work for me, you know, put on the... the the Irish brogue and charm. But um, I want to like circle back to what you said before, and that is, I think it's really important to start in a medium or start in a space where you feel comfortable because the superpower that we all want to develop and flex is confidence. Um, and it's about taking baby steps. So I've always loved writing. I feel comfortable writing, and that's where I started and, you know, grew my confidence and, you know, my following and, and everything else. Um, and it's not that I've peaked because you can never peak in writing. And like you said, I've added a visual element and I love love putting together little carousels and graphics and coming up with funny captions. That's not a burden for me. That's just like I got way too many things that I want to write about every single day. Um, that becomes a burden, my so the overabundance of sort of thoughts and feelings and ideas. If you have a look at my Google Doc where I sort of start to draft all of my posts, at any given time, there are 10 unfinished posts because I start to write one. Then I'm like, oh, my God, I got a better idea. I know what I'm going to write about. And I start to write another. At the end of the day, I'm like, wonderful. I've got 10 unwritten posts and nothing to publish tomorrow. So I sort of go back and finish off, off one of them. But it's just, um, it's, it's always fascinating and fun and interesting. And, yeah, I could probably do a lot of great stuff with video, too. And I think that there's a lot that comes a Cross in your personality and your body language and your enthusiasm when you when you do it um, uh, over video too. So I have been I've been postponing and sort of staving off this moment for a long time. But you know, like everything, it's not as it's not as intimidating as as you think it is, especially in this sort of nice conversant uh, unscripted format. Yeah, I think I think the main thing is to to I guess wrap this whole thing up is be yourself. I mean, you are an expert in your field, so share what you know and be authentic about it. And once you start to not be you, it's hard to keep that up number 1. And secondly, mm. it's it, 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 the audience understand it. When you're giving away like great value in your posts like you do, like I do, um and you're just giving away your best knowledge for free essentially. It's, it's powerful. So I think uh, um, more power to your elbow to continue writing and uh, um, we'll, we'll see hopefully more formats. Now, growing up in Ireland, um, I can't imagine this little guy Gordon running around saying, I want to be a brand strategist. <laughs> um, what did you want to be when you were younger? I wanted to be a, a car journalist for sure. Interesting. I'm a, I'm a petrol head. I'm a car nut. My late grandfather was, my father is, and I just grew up just loving cars um, and loving really, really good car journalism, which was never just about the technical aspect, but it was like, it was like a travel diary and it was, it was really interesting. And that's the first great writing um, that I sort of grew up, you know, reading before I was reading books or thinking about like books or literature and I just, I just wanted to, to, to do that more than anything else, you know? So that's what I grew up wanting to be. Anything to do, any excuse to like drive amazing cars. Um, but I think I the didn't interesting realize... part, Go sorry on. to cut over you. I think the interesting part is obviously the love of cars and the interest around that. But it's obviously not a million miles away when you say journalism or writing from where you've actually landed up. You wanted to tell a story of you know, your world of automobiles. Yeah, but I never really, I never really thought of comms. I describe myself as a, a sort of a comms professional a, a communications strategist because it's one thing that's been common to everything that I've done regardless of my, of my titles. But I got started out proper, like career-wise working in, 
in high tech. This was like the late 90s, just before the dot bomb. I was going to say the first dot bomb. I hope it was the first and last one. Um, and so I started working in high tech, sort of as a project manager. I wore lots of hats back then. I got into technical writing simply because there wasn't a, another technical writer at the first company I worked at. So that's where I sort of learned to, um, I learned like the craft of really, you know, crisp, accurate writing. And the thing about technical writing is, of course, it needs to be 100% unambiguous. So it's almost a very, it's a very antichrist of anything creative. You don't want to be creative or abstract to get people imagining or thinking. This needs to be very short, concise and instructional. So I enjoyed that aspect of communication, but I didn't actually realize that I wanted to work in um, advertising, which was sort of my first foray into intercoms until I think I was about 30, about 2005. Wow. Okay. Um, and I'd always loved advertising. I'd always loved advertising. Um, and I found myself enjoying the ads during the ad break more than the program itself when I was growing up. And I grew up in Ireland, but we, we had mainly sort of British TV channels and British advertising is just wonderful. And I would enjoy the ads so much. And I didn't really think about it. I never thought about this sort of as something that I could do as a career. It just sort of dawned on me um, at age 30 that this is what I wanted to do. So I made quite a, quite a big career pivot. And I sort of almost like started at the bottom type of thing, took a big, big, big wage cut. Um, and that's where I got started. So I did advertising. I mean, I worked to message and communication strategy, like the big idea behind campaigns. And then it was a very sort of natural evolution or segue into like brand strategy, because it's all about the same thing, just, you know, different contexts, different types of clients. So, so yeah, that's how I got into it. So brand strategy, when you pull the man off the street and you say, brand or brand strategy people think you know oh it's a logo it's a website it's you know some collateral but obviously <clears throat> we know that it's, it's way more than that for 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 people trying to understand the world of brand strategy and what it actually entails how would you describe it oh gosh i've been trying to codify this myself for years to be honest with you robert um in one sentence uh, brand strategy is your reason to believe is the reason to believe that you're giving your audience or your stakeholders. Uh, when I think about what, when I think what a, what a brand is, uh, I also have a very um, fluid definition of it. A brand is a set of associations in someone's mind. Okay. And branding is the intentional process of creating or influencing those associations. So, you know, if you, if you take, you take the name of something or someone who is very divisive, like Marmite or Donald Trump, everybody's got their own ideas as to, you know, what that or that person means to them, right? Very, very divided opinions. When you do branding, you are, you're trying to sort of mold or influence those associations in a way that sort of serves your business goals best. So it's not, it's as much an art as a science. People will think what they're going to think anyway. The best you can do is try to influence those by using uh, various sort of branding devices at your, uh, at your disposal, whether it's the verbal identity, whether it's what you say, how you say it, your tone of voice, how you look, what your logo looks like. Again, most people think branding, they think logo. Your visual identity is only an expression of, of the sort of the deeper, core essence and truth of you as an organization of your of your product as your why as Simon Sinek speaks about the why it's just an expression of that and it's only got as much value um, as the internal truth you're trying to express outward and connect to like the need states of your of your audience so branding is it's a it's sort of this holistic process but it starts with strategy and that's where i like to be involved in the genesis of any branding process is doing research coming up with insights learning about the real um unambiguous and undeniable truths of your organization of your customer of the industry 
And then the real magic happens is in trying to get those to be relevant and interesting to to your audience and to the market. It's always bridging the gap between what you want to say and what your audience needs to hear. And that's where like the magic of like the strategy comes in. Um, and from that, you take that, what I call the organizing idea behind the brand, you take the narrative and then you express it visually. And so the visual process should begin. Uh, and from that, wonderful things come. Your your marketing strategy, your channel strategy, what content I, I should be producing, where it should be shared, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it starts with strap. I think, I think interestingly, strategy is a good word. I mean, it's obviously we all know what it means. I've been through a few branding strategy processes in previous, uh, you know, career positions, and it often feels like therapy at the first stage. It's really, it's really everyone. It's like group therapy, actually. Actually, Absolutely. everyone just just coming and sharing what they think, how they feel, what they think customers think about it. And it's actually a very, very powerful process. I mean, it, it, it surfaces things that often had been latent in the organization that are the real drivers behind how the the market views you. Right. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's um, there's a lot of group therapy um, working with founders and startups. It's like marriage guidance counseling for <laughs> newlywed couples um, because every organization has its, it's got its undercurrents. It's got its unresolved arguments and debates. You know, what type of business are we actually in? Um, and the first role of branding is to create cohesion and consensus within the organization, for sure. Um, the client needs to be the first stakeholder, both management and employees. They have to really feel that they own the brand. They have to be able to identify with, embrace it. You know, everybody talks about, you know, fake it till you make it. Well, you can fake confidence, but you cannot fake conviction. So you need to, you need to get that conviction nailed in and it's not something that you can just present as a fait complete. You have to work towards it. And it's, um, it's a process you have to be patient with. So I'll, I'll often do workshops to get everybody on board. And I believe I wrote quite, I wrote a bit of a controversial post about this. I believe in diversity and inclusion. It's super important to get, to get like the broadest spectrum of voices and perspectives and particularly if you're working with a large organization you need to get sales perspective and business development because at the end of the day brand is really there to serve everybody um but you also you don't want it to be a complete sort of cacophony you're not sort of outsourcing this to the client so that's where equality doesn't quite come in you're still there to lead the process not all voices mm -hmm. all voices are equally valuable but not equally um, not equal in terms of, okay, so what should we be talking about and how are we going to crystallize all of this into a brand idea or a narrative? So that's a really, really important part to do sometimes before you start the entire branding process. Um, and certainly after you've, after you've finished the initial uh, research and you've done all of your stakeholder interviews, you're going to come out with a lot of truths and some of them will be inconvenient and uncomfortable. So brutal honesty, brutal honesty is like one of the, one of my guiding principles, but everything on the uh, table um, create a safe space. Um, so I don't always do group sessions, you know, with uh, sort of employees and management together. You want people mm -hmm. to really share what they Open really up. think and uh, feel. Um, but creating that internal cohesion, that's, that's the foundation upon which you can attempt to be built with the brand strategy for the for the company itself like you have to have that nailed in um and you have to create consensus consensus upon all parts of the of the uh, journey which is going to give your client um you know the courage and the balls to take the next step because they know what they've done to get to where they are now if that makes sense no, I, I, I totally understand. I think I think what's interesting is also brand from an external perspective of obviously how the market views you, less from an internal perspective. Where do you think, uh, and maybe there's no parity in this, um, often you hear people talk about reputation and or brand or reputation being the thing that people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, I mean, where's the fine line between brand and reputation or, or, or how you're viewed? Good question. 
Yeah, I think I think that was Jeff Bezos's definition of what a brand is. What people say about oh, you. Oh, really? I didn't. I've heard yeah, it so yeah. many times <laughs> in different places, but yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I spent a, a short stint at, at Amazon. That was one of the the favorite, like fanboy and fangirl <laughs> <laughs> slides <laughs> I saw in presentations all the time. It's a really good question. Listen, I want to go back to, you know, the thing I I think that my my sort of code and my guiding principle again is the is the search for truth. So I'm I'm always looking to find out what the brand is really is really about, um, and then work out how to make that you know what is essentially trustworthy about the position that we're taking in the market or in our voice or in the in our approach to uh, comms. So I definitely like to work on brands from the from the inside out. Um, I'm an absolute freak for one-on-one stakeholder interviews, and that's where I've got my best ideas and insights. They're just, they're sort of hiding in plain sight, but you need to go out and like talk about them and ask about them and, <laughs> and find them. Um, brand reputation. Do you, do you have a, do you have a tried and tested route to do that? Is there a sort of uh, yeah. guy? Which, which I'll get back to in one second. I want to try to tackle your Quite tough question, which is about brand reputation. Brand reputation is your is your ongoing ability to deliver on your brand promise every day. You know, one of the things when I come up with like a new brand promise for a client, <laughs> I sit them down and I say, okay, guys, like we're committing ourselves with this. Can you commit to fulfilling this brand promise from like living and breathing it every day? And don't just say, oh, yes, but, you know, let's think about the resources it's going to require. Let's think about the commitment it's going to require. Let's think about the the moral position that you're going to, you know, need to take in all sorts of different situations. This is something that you can that you really believe in with your heart and soul and are going to be willing to commit to live up to every day. So a lot of the brand reputation management is something that's sort of a bit out of out of my hands. I can certainly show what this might mean for your reputation or what type of reputation this is going to set up that you're going to need to protect and cultivate and protect over over time um but brand reputation is something that i'll give you i'll give you a quick example i've spoken about this before um airbnb's big brand idea belong anywhere mm-hmm. so this was this is like this is a fantastic organizing idea and i've spoken on a post about you know how they sort of evolved to that very abstract idea over time when people understood what their whole crazy concept was of like staying in like strangers' rooms and stuff. But what they were able to do in terms of living out that brand and really bolstering the reputation around it was situations when we had we had the mass waves of migration. When was it? 2015-16? Um, and we had a lot of social upheaval and, you know, homophobia and xenophobia they were able to then take that message of belong anywhere and, you know, use that to offer sort of free temporary accommodation to immigrants or to frontline workers during COVID. Um, and that's, that is something that really helps them, you know, um, maintain their brand reputation in a way that's totally tied into the big idea behind the brand and that they're actually living out their brand promise of belong anywhere in the actions, in the actions that they take and everything that they do, so that's not flimsy. That's not some type of greenwashing, which like a lot of brands tend to do. Well, and, I guess this and, is the this is the the dividing line between this emergence over recent years of um, I, I guess purpose is the word that maybe exactly. brands and companies didn't have to tackle with in you know the decades gone by mm-hmm. and. Today, your brand has to have, whether we like it or not, we, talk, we can debate the, the whys and wherefores of whether purpose should be woven in so dramatically to business and, uh, you know, B2B brands or even B2C brands. And I know there's lots of data and evidence to show that it actually obviously works. You know, the, the, the market itself is moving that way. They want to, you know, the, the new generation wants to buy things from brands that align with their values and purpose. But on the flip side, I personally feel that it's a slippery slope because you, you've got your brand of you know, what you do and how you view yourself within the world and the service you're 
product that you're offering, but you're also merging into, you know, lots of other areas that I don't know, maybe I'm just old now, but I, I feel that it's, it's too much. I mean, why has all brand now have to have purpose with it? Well, they don't and they ought not to. And I think that, um, what will I cause? Uh, you can call it cause marketing. I think that, you know, virtue signaling for virtue signaling sake is vapent and pointless and you're simply adding to the noise and the you just noise, look like yeah. an, you look like everybody else who has to come out with like the same it's so boring and so tedious but what i do think i think that you should do it as much uh, as it is relevant and ties into the values of your audience in a way that drives brand affinity and drives purchase decision okay and I'm quite right, sort of... Let's just get that out again. Brand I'm quite real. and purchasing decision. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's just the two things that came top of, of my mind. So if, you're, if your brand is sort of naturally in this space, if your audience is a very woke audience, I'm not PC, I'll just say these words, okay? If it's a very woke oh. audience <laughs> um, and you think that it's going to help to impart some of those values or give some of those vibes across in your marketing and that's going to help, that's going to help you know, um, create an emotional connection with your audience and it's going to create brand affinity for you and it's ultimately going to help you shift product, then, yeah, you probably have like a business imperative to, yes, be talking about these things and push your marketing in that way. Um, if you're dealing with, I don't know, if you're dealing with, you know, high net worth individuals and you're a super, a super um, exclusive wealth management company, then those things probably mean less to the type of people that you're reaching out to. And you just you just look silly if you if you talk about them. I mean, it, it's all about relevance at the end of the day. And it's about, like you said, it's about you've got lots of dials. You've got to work out how much to dial up <laughs> different, you know, flavors of your marketing and different different messages. Uh, but you need to be, you need to do it, like you said, very carefully and very judiciously, because otherwise you're going to fall into the pink walk the 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 pink washing bucket or the pink washing or the green washing you know you don't want to you don't want to um just be seen to be doing it for for the sake of doing it there's got to be something smart around it and if you do want to jump on if you do want to jump on an opportunity to do like a special campaign around international pride day then do it in a way that's like really really relevant to your product and funny and adds value you know don't just put out <laughs> a banner saying we support LGBT rights, but do it like demonstrate how you're doing it and make it meaningful and don't make it cringy. You, you use a word Please. there, funny. You use the word there, funny um, and humor. I mean, look, we're, um, you know, you, you said you grew up on British TV and British commercials and that, you know, English sarcasm. Um, humor plays a huge role, I think, today in... Um, people just identifying with um, the brands that they want to choose. And it's such a sticky psychological concept. Where have you seen humor work best in campaigns that you've ran um, and strategies that you've de deployed over the years? Well, <laughs> I'll talk a little bit about maybe how I've used humor in in my posts, what I think about, yep, about, absolutely. about humor. I think humor is great. First of all, like for the obvious reasons that laughter is the best medicine. And when you laugh, you're, I don't know, you're releasing what is dopamine or serotonin. I mean, it's got, it's got we'll an undeniable Release chemical reaction. <laughs> so you're automatically happier and you're, you're open to, to suggestion and it piques your curiosity. And like for all of those chemical reasons, it's like a good, a good device to use. I think humor is wonderful as a disarming device. I think to, I think we need to be using a lot of, a lot more sort of disarming techniques in our communications to take the natural antagonism out of marketing because marketing is naturally antagonistic, right? Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. proposing something new and whoever you're proposing it to, you sort of force them on their back foot. You're almost implicitly questioning what they've been doing until now. And you know, questioning their choices. And that's what, it doesn't matter how clever your copy is or whether they actually need what you have to offer. You're sort of challenging them or 
questioning their competence and choices that they made in the in the past. And I think that taking a a humoristic approach is a great a great sort of uh, leveler. It's a great way to sort of disarm that built-in antagonism, and it can be very very funny. Um, I use humor. I vent a lot on LinkedIn. I don't know if you've been reading my posts, but um, I'm either inspired to write about stuff on LinkedIn, my stuff that pisses me off or stuff that moves me positively. Um, and I don't want to come across as a cranky old whinger on LinkedIn, always giving out about stuff. <laughs> so I do try to, oh, I do enjoy venting. It's very therapeutic and it sort of resonates with a lot of other people, things other people want to vent about, but maybe don't have the balls to do it publicly. But I do use wit to try to take the sting out of it, to try to show that it's all done in in good humor um, and to sort of juxtapose serious things I'm saying with something completely offhand, where a lot of my dub and witticisms come in. So I write a really serious sentence. You know, this is something that the market believes and I'm just right, of course, this is total bollocks. And so it sort of helps to change the cadence a little bit. shocking and the cadence, exactly. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I don't do it for shock value, but just to, just to sort of take the seriousness out of the conversation and then get into like a funner way of talking about something. Um, and I don't think that you need to be... One thing I've... Yeah, I posted about, posted about a company called Coda who sort of invented this sort of mashup between like a spreadsheet and a Word document. Um, and their launch copy was enough of this sheet, which works very well in Israel because you all know what it sounds like. But that was, they were just taking the piss out of it. And the, the visual was just like somebody just holding a spreadsheet up to their face like that. And it was just, it was funny and hilarious because you can literally hear people saying it. But it's brilliant. It's it was brilliant. just, it was the segue into their value proposition. And before, you know, they their hero copy could have been, it's time for a new type of document that combines, it could have been really sort of sensible and right, but it would have been dull. So they have that as their hero copy. And then you get the idea, you connect with the emotion, right? You felt like that a million times before. And now they give you like the sort of the calamine lotion to your pain afterwards. So it's a great way of cutting the ice and it's not done enough in B2B marketing. And I've also written oh, about this. I totally agree. Some people that. seem I mean, to I... think that because we're working in, in B2B marketing and we're dealing with CMOs and procurement officers and they make they make purely rational decisions based on KPIs and stuff. It's absolute nonsense. Business people are they don't like swap out their brains. It's not like that TV show Severance where they swap out their brains when they go into into work. And they are parched, they're starving for a little bit of light humor. And they'd love to have messages thrown at them like the best sort of consumer campaigns. And this is people just feel marketers feel like straightjacketed by the fact that they're working in a business environment and they have, you know, working to sell some big enterprise SaaS product and we have to talk a certain way and we have to focus on the ROI and like the rational pers uh, persuasion. I don't think that they could be further from the truth. You have to bring in the rational persuasion as the reason to believe as the, as the RTB. But to engage people, to get their juices flowing, to get them to like stop and, you know, click on your ad or go through at least a third of your of your landing page. No, you need a completely fresh approach to that. And humor I, is uh, humor yeah. is something that we all love, Robert. But we seem to say, okay, well, I'm going to watch like going to watch this hilarious comedian on YouTube, like I do when I'm cooking in the kitchen. That's going to be my sort of wind down. And then when I come to working on messaging, I'm going to do the SWOT analysis and map out my competitors. Like bollocks, absolutely not. It's totally the not way to be thinking. So there should be no demarcation between the two. Um, you, the art uh, is being able to use humor carefully. The art is to be able to use humor carefully and to, to take your subject matter seriously, to take your product seriously and your customer's sort of um, conundrum and their needs seriously, but not to take yourself too seriously as a brand. Your product, yes, but not yourself. There's a subtle but important distinction. A few people I think you get. mentioned before the hero brand or the hero story within um, marketing. I'm actually reading at the moment, you've probably read it, but uh, the Building a Story brand by Donald Miller, um, where mm. he takes people through the sort of methodology of a tried and tested um, way that people tell stories, that people become very um, 
expectant of how the story will go. And he starts with he starts with the model of um, Hollywood that all good movies have a hero, the hero has a problem, a villain comes along, and a guide appears and takes the hero through the movie to the promised land, and and you know the villain's defeated and the hero looks great. Um, and it's really interesting when you read the book and, and follow some of the other collateral that they've got um, because it just works. I mean, it's it's just human selling, but it's also psychologically um, the way people are, have been hardwired to understand the world to some extent. And you know, maybe we've become even more polarised on this in our slightly crazy world at the moment. But you have these heroes and villains and people are going to take you to you know, this, this, this solution that's going to help you. Um, how, how, do, how do you feel about this, this uh, sort of methodology, as it were, from, from Donald Miller? I don't know whether you know it, but uh, I'd love your input. I'm familiar with it. I'll admit I'm a bit of a Philistine. I probably don't read as much as I, as I ought to. Um, well, I do think in terms, I agree with two things that you said. First of all, that there is a very sort of predictable narrative uh, Arch, arc to most stories um, and you see this in advertising too uh, when I used to work with insurance brands so they were always insurance brand campaigns were always based on sort of a few standard models one was like peace of mind another one was like prepare for the unexpected and you knew at the beginning of the ad almost intuitively which bucket it was going to fall into so, yeah, using sort of tried and tested um, formulae in terms of like the story and the message is something that I have, uh, I veer away from like viscerally. When it comes to the characters, uh, the hero, the, the nemesis, I do use them as sort of devices and tools to help focus my clients when we're talking about branding. So... You know, we talk about the competitive landscape, um, but it really sort of it really it really sort of helps to sharpen it in their mind if I use the word like who's the who's the arch villain? Because at the end of the day, you can do all of the fancy competitive landscape mapping and put them into different quadrants and stuff like that. But the CMO still goes to bed that night um thinking about like one competitor that's making their life miserable. And they still sort of personify it and they still like end up loving slash hating a company because they're making their life miserable or whatever. So it, it does help, does help to sort of personalize it and create those characters. Again, like you say, characters which have existed in human lore and storytelling forever, but I don't really use that. I've, I'm very sort of anti-process. I don't really have like a set process or methodology. I've got sort of a logical order in which a strategy should be built. Um, but it's one of the tools in, in my toolbox that I'll, I'll take out and use to help create like a little bit of theatre and drama around this sort of boring business process we're trying to, to go it's a great It's know? a great way to get people to understand in a, a tried and tested way where they sit within the landscape and, and the story that they're, they're trying to tell, the solution right, that they're trying right. to bring out. And they, because um, uh, they, they may have like a, they may have sort of a primary competitor or direct competitor, but they may also have indirect competitors who, uh, on the one hand, may be sort of competing for the same market share, but on the other hand, they are broadening the category and they're increasing awareness. So I don't put them in the villains. So you got to think of like another character or archetype for that, and it just sort of helps to put a label onto these things and to help to organize and categorize stuff. So when you stand back, it's not as sort of confusing and, and overwhelming as you thought it was in the beginning. I think where he's he's taken me actually in learning is that the villain doesn't always have to be another company or a competitor. The villain is often the the challenge, the problem or the objective that the client has that they can't achieve without you. So, you know, Coda, you mentioned before, I don't know them, but I would imagine that in their story arc, the villain is actually horrible Excel spreadsheets is the villain. And that, you know, we're all tired of Excel and that's that's the villain in their story, that the hero is the client, but the guide is Coda. We're going to take you on this different journey 
towards this this better land. Or the villa, or the villain could be locked down or working in isolation or trying to work on a 100%. big international project over three time zones with half the team off sick and a looming deadline. Or the villain could be, you know, the attention economy. It could be a lack of time or it could be everything. You know, this is what I always tell clients when we're thinking about what is going through the client's mind. I'm like, well, work is one thing going through their mind, but also picking, picking the kids up from school and you know making the mortgage payment and planning christmas holidays is like a million different things that's who you're really competing with you're competing for share right. of mind more than anything else so yeah i think it's really important to take a sort of a zoom out and see like the 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 uh, holistic view and right now people are worried about paying energy bills and what's going to be in the difficult year ahead and how to get through the winter i mean far more far lower down on the on the Maslow pyramid than the highfalutin <laughs> ideas that we like to map out on on sort of customer needs mapping. Um, what is the most exciting project you've ever worked on, brand strategy project in your career so far? Oh, I can't believe you're asking me this. There's been Come so on. many. Spill the beans. So Which exciting. one really stands out for you as that is a proud piece of work that I did? Oh God, whoever I mention now, my rest of my clients will be like commenting. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to have to. You can pepper in a few. I'll let you. Yeah, I'll, I'll pepper in, I'll pepper in, I'll pepper in. Quick a fire few. rounds. Which are the okay. top three or four? A quick fire round. I think in terms of the impact I'm made on people's lives, or I should say my partner and I, because we did this together was for Sivan Innovation. Um, I've written a case study about this too, which was an early, a cancer early detection application for doctors and for patients to help doctors detect cases of relapse earlier. You know, for patients who had been through their initial treatment and then they go through that sort of follow-up observation period. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of patients relapse during that period. And this company had had uh, created this great product to help detect relapse earlier. Um, and they had the product and they had the AI and they'd done like the multi-year clinical study and they had everything that they needed to succeed. But they were telling a technology story. You know, they're talking about the first evidence-based you know, AI-powered, paradigm-shifting, whatever, lots of other buzzwords. And exhausted physicians were not interested in this. They'd rather go get like an hour's kip in the middle of the day in a long shift and <laughs> then be pitched to by a young med tech startup. Um, and I did what nobody in the company had done before. And that was actually shadow oncologists in hospital. Wow. I think it was four or five different hospitals I went to and I shadowed an oncologist like for the entire day. And I really experienced what they experienced. Um, and it's a, it was a difficult experience for me personally, not an easy one. And at the end of the day, I said to them, listen, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's your greatest fear? As a doctor, and they said, having to turn around and tell a patient who's relapsed, if only I had known sooner. You know, and to feel the frustration that they had spent their entire careers, and some of these are doctors with 20, 30, 40 years experience, regardless of how smart and experienced, whatever technology they have at their disposal, they were still missing. They were still missing, you know, patients that had relapsed. Um, to cut a long story short, we realized it wasn't, it wasn't about the technology at all. It wasn't even about the product. It was simply about the opportunity for these doctors to, to find out, to get an, an earlier warning when, when a patient um, looked likely to be relapsing. And one doctor said to me, like, I don't care about technology. I don't care if it's an app or if it's like a fairy godmother sitting on it's my outcomes. shoulder. What's the outcome? Yeah, it's just outcomes. And the intact that the, the technology for them was invisible. So um, what we came out with was like a really simple um, but universally applicable insight or uh, one line sort of strategy line, which was it's never too early to detect relapse. And the creative expression of that was early as on time. So we had basically become the early company and we stood, we wanted to stand for everything early. We celebrated everything that's good about getting there early, discovering something early. And the beauty for the, the beauty for the company was that whatever their product suite 
is going to be, whatever products are going to develop in the future, it's always going to be about early detection algorithms. So the first indication was lung cancer, but it's going to be lots of other, you know, chronic diseases in the in the future. But it also plays it also plays into, you know, the the the, the whole world of, um, you know, cancer treatment that we all know that word early. We know yes. that when you diagnose early, when you treat early, when you exactly. detect early, it speaks to the language of that sector. It by it taps into something that the entire medical world already knows to be true. And patients too. Um, and I, and I, I guess with an eye on the future, though, Guy, um, if you could get a phone call from an, <clears throat> any company in the world, what would be your absolute dream brand strategy brief? David Attenborough. I want David Attenborough to call me up and say, I've spent my entire life, devoted my entire life to raising awareness of um, the natural world and awareness to the damage we're causing in climate change and for all of my work and the work of so many other concerned citizens and scientists around the world, um, it's the message just isn't getting through. Because I believe that our biggest, and I'm again, I'm not a, uh, I've always wanted to apply my skills to the greatest possible good. And there's nothing that we need more urgently um, as humanity, but to sort of change the way that we think, to change our, our mindset and the mental model around protecting the environment and sustainability and cutting down consumption and everything else related to that. And I think that at this stage, it is a failure of communication more than anything else. I really believe that. And I would love to, I'd love to get a brief to come up with um, a global communication strategy for changing everybody's minds or for addressing the apathy. I think it's apathy and indifference and ignorance. So yeah, why would that might be my dream brief? Well, there's no sort of single world entity. You need to, you need to do work for an organization that's got the wherewithal and the leverage and the reach um, and the influence to get the message out there, you know? So I was just thinking of like, who's the greatest living icon for all of this? And it is still... David Attenborough and I in horror. He's really getting on now. So he's, an inc he's just in incredible. He I needs, mean, him and needs, uh, obviously the late Queen. Now these two yes. icons of, of our worlds for sure. Um, but I was thinking to, to flip to flip that question on its head, though. What projects would you not do? So you get a call from um, I don't know. Let's say fossil fuel companies, oil companies. Um, or, you know, I'm just using those as a direct you know, mirror opposite of what you just said. But um, where where is the line for you? I don't know. A political party called you. Very, like, very good question. You. We want you, Guy. Oh, God. Where does, where's um, the line? Where do you say, look, no? <laughs> uh, the really simple answer is, I guess, gambling and tobacco. There are certain things I just don't think are overall a force of good for the world. Yep. Um, but then you've got questions like if it's for the national lottery or here in Israel, the, you know, Mifal HaPais, that, right. that that does result in some people having gambling problems, but they also put a lot of money back into social good and culture and stuff like that. Like as soon as I come up with a law, there's like a whole bunch of like caveats, conditions in which <laughs> I would do something. But that's that's my own sort of, that's my own call to make. But there, there's got to be good. And if there's good and bad, then the good has to outweigh the bad itself. There's nothing that there's nothing that I won't. There's very very little that I haven't done. Um, I was asked to lead. Uh, I was asked to lead um, a PR strategy for a tycoon once who was making a run on Israel's natural resources many years ago. You might be able to guess who it was, and I refused to do that because I would not be complicit in in the rape and theft of our country's natural resources, regardless of how what a great communicator I am. So I said no to that. I have said no to quite a few jobs in the past. Um, like gaming, for example, mm -hmm. gaming, my kids are addicted enough to their devices. I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do sort of a pure gaming project, but if it was gaming that was, that was helping to bring people together or gaming for, you know, kids with uh, learning, with learning disabilities or gaming for, that you know had some type of of good or was inclusive in a way that gaming hadn't been before. Then certainly I would consider it. But I've okay, got my so sort of uh, my unofficial moral compass of stuff that I 
will and won't do. Yeah, I knew you would have. I just wasn't sure where it would be. So uh, I've done politics before. I've done politics before. Um, But here my contrarian side comes in because naturally I'm liberal. So naturally my tendency would be to want to to want to do a campaign for, you know, a party or an ideology that I identify with. However, that said, about two and a half years ago, uh, for a short while, I ran a Republican congressional campaign in Florida. I like to do things that take me out of my comfort zone. Now, it wasn't for it wasn't for like a diehard, you know, a diehard crazy Republican. It was obviously for a very liberal re- Republican. I, there needed to be some matching in values, but mm-hmm. my guess was they're going to win anyway. If they're going to win, I'd like there to be the most sane and palatable candidate person in power. Well, it's the classic. Uh, it's it's all, almost like, almost like damage control. Exactly. Almost like sort of damage control in some ways. Um, I always take on projects that are challenging. If a project looks too easy, I won't want to do it. Um, and that's where, yeah, that's what I get off on is cracking really, really difficult briefs. And it could be because, for different reasons, it could be because it's um, there's a political minefield. It could be that there's a lot of bickering within the, the company and you bring great value in just bringing everything, everybody together. It could be a really, really difficult market problem you have to, you have to solve. Um, but I am, I'm a devil for punishment, as we'd say in the Dublin. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, you've also worked for two of the biggest brands that I think people, you know, will instantly identify with. Obviously, Amazon that you mentioned before, but also within the, the creative and advertising world, Saatchi. Um, what would you say are the, at both of those companies, your experiences there, were the sort of key one or two learnings that you've had from having you know, stints in your career at um, pretty behemoth companies. Wow. It's a lot to unpack. Um, I'll try to cherry pick. So uh, Sachin Sachi was my first, like, really serious job in advertising. Um, I had been aware of their advertising. We all grew up with some of their ads, like British Airways. We probably remember when we were younger. Uh, I... I was inspired by, I guess, the founder story of Morrison Charles Saatchi, just the balls and audacity they had to get their name out, to get their name out there. Here were two Jewish boys from Baghdad trying to break into a very, very waspish institution. They had no help, um, and they just pulled off the most audacious tricks to get stuff going. You know, when they had no clients, what they did was <laughs> they rented really fancy offices. And they rent and they sort of hired a whole bunch of, you know, not terribly PC, but this is back in the swinging 60s, young pretty dolly birds to sort of walk around the lobby of their company, which was basically all they had was like just a lobby um, and just hired typists to look very, very busy typing. So when clients came in, they thought this was like a really, really busy buzzing agency. And they had one office, which was like the office that they used to bring their prospects into. And they were very, very well connected with, celebrities so they would have like Mick Jagger just like laid out on the chaise long like smoking a joint or um, <laughs> Shirley Bassey standing by the windowsill having a drink or something darling darling and people were just like flabbergasted they were like oh my god this is a really really hot outfit like we have to work with these guys it's proper Don Draper man no it was proper Don Draper stuff but this was you know <laughs> two Baghdadi Jewish boys in London doing it mate like this this all happened. So I, I learned quite a lot about audacity. What I learned was a little bit less from Sachin Sachin, but I think from my first boss, who I would love to mention here, David Cosman, who was, you know, the head of uh, strategy at Sachin Tel Aviv when I went to join, and still much of the most important things that I've learned in advertising, I learned from him. Wow. So I didn't learn much. I wasn't actually in love with the with the Saatchi way of advertising, we had this thing called Love Marks, and it was it felt all a little bit sort of um, synthesized to me. But I did get an opportunity to work, of course, on uh, global brands and accounts, Coca-Cola, Ford, and all of these accounts that you wouldn't have had a chance to, you know, work on if you were starting out solo. Sure. sure. Um, what about at Amazon? Wow, Amazon, I learned a ton from. I find they have an absolutely fascinating 
work culture and work methodology. It's not for everyone, but it's fascinating all the same. The few things that I really cherry picked from it, first of all, um, and I just want to, yeah, I just want to repeat what you said. I worked within like uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, within the broader Amazon group, but there's no demarcation. Once you're in in the company, you go to the employee directory, there's, there was like 1.8 million people in the directory when I was there. So it's just, it's more of a confederacy of dozens of different business units and autonomous teams working around the working over the uh, around the globe than it is like a real company but what they do incredibly is they've created the purest meritocracy that i've ever seen um and what i mean by that is uh all of your ideas are written down you write down all of your ideas and anybody can write down an, an idea whether you're like a top executive at the bezos level or you're working as a forklift driver in a warehouse you get your idea down onto paper there's wow. no presentations. There's no internal presentations. Everything is written. You come up with your idea <clears throat> and you, you peer review it and you work on it and you get, you gather the, all of the uh, data and support that you need for your idea and you share it with your peers. You share it with your manager. It doesn't just go right up to the leadership because every day there are thousands of people coming up with new ideas, better ways to do, to do things, new product ideas. And how in the hell do you process so many ideas in an organization that like hires the best people? Well, you have to create almost, it's almost like the Hunger Games for good ideas, okay? <laughs> so there were thousands of papers circulating around every day and sometimes your paper may have to go through 60 iterations. You may be working on this for a year before it gets to like the very, very top. But when it gets to the top, it's been it's been crystallized and shorn of any like any fluff, it's just like a pure idea that like Bezos is going to get to sign off on. So there's a there's an incredibly rich culture of writing. I think writing is probably the top superpower, the top business power, and um, that you can that you need to develop in uh, Amazon. And I mean, people probably know this because it's been written about. But every team meeting starts with a fifteen to twenty minute silent read, where we read a paper that somebody's written. And we think about it and then we discuss it afterwards. There's no presentation because there's no presentation because this is like they worked out the whole diversity and inclusion thing like years ago before it was trendy. You can you can author a paper anonymously. So it doesn't matter who you are or who you are or whether you've been to biz school or what color you are. That's where that's why they didn't do presentations, because they don't want to be selling mediocre ideas through a charismatic salesperson or presenter. So I love I love the, the purity and the and the honesty of that of that meritocracy. Um, and the leadership principles which are really form the foundation of everything that Amazon does and work and how you think and how you argue a point and how you make decisions. And they're not these highfalutin leadership principles that they sort of print up and put on the you know put on the front of the building they're lived and breathed every single day. Um, and the principles uh, that have a lot of principles that have a lot of internal um, tension and contradiction built in, so that you have to work out yourself which principle should be leading you e each time. It's very, very intense. It's not for everybody, and it's an enormous organization um, where you have to be a really, really good big org creature, I think, to do well. I wasn't. I'm, I'm a creative savant. I like. <laughs> I like to be in small, intimate teams. I found it bewilderingly huge. So it wasn't for me, but there's a huge amount that I think that they do well and right as an organization. Talking there of Bezos, obviously he's a personal brand in his own right. Um, your brand strategy work often obviously is at the company level, but more and more today, that personal brand, whether it's, you and I on LinkedIn, all the way through to the, you know, the big icons that we know, personal brand plays such an important role in the brand reputation and, and brand strategy. How do, how do you see that synergy with the company brand and the personal brand, which can sometimes be slightly different um, and, and the impact that they have together? <laughs> you know, all the right questions to ask, don't you, Robert? Yeah, I can see how devious of you. Well, um, 
I think that you always need to be working on your personal brand. For the right or wrong reasons, I had been developing my personal brand since you goaded me to start doing it and writing on LinkedIn. <laughs> and then of the many wonderful things that that the first three and a half very intensive months of writing and building my brand did was it actually got me the job in, in Amazon. That's how Amazon discovered me. But then when, once I was in Amazon, because they are such a, they're a closely guarded brand with incredibly strict rules as to about what you can and can't say and in which form and on which channel. I got all sort of adult and I said, oh, I can't keep on writing about the things I normally write about with my fruity mouth and my my controversial <laughs> out there ideas and everything else. So I sort of just, I stopped posting as you and probably others have noticed for quite a while. For the year I was there and in the recovery period afterwards and it took, it was actually quite difficult to get back to writing again. And I, I neglected my personal brand, which was a shame. Um, but there I was, I was like a minnow in this huge organization. And I, I was never quite sure, like you say, where the demarcation, like where does Guy end and Amazon stop or the other way around. But the point you mentioned is really true when it comes to, when it comes to a CEO or senior officer or a founder at a, a company, then I think that it is so important that they infuse like the personal with the corporate. And there's nothing drearier than a CEO who's simply posting about his or her own company or the latest announcement. You really want to know, you want to know what makes this person tick and what they've noticed and what excites them and their observations about the, the industry. And that's particularly working with small companies where you really are engaging far more intimately with the leadership team. You want to know who you're dealing with. You want to get sort of a feeling for them. And I think what can draw, and you tell me because you're the sales guy, what can really help to draw clients to companies is, wow, like, you know, the CEO sees things the way we do or yeah, something they exactly. said just, exactly. you know, and you're having that, that conversation and you're being personal and you're sharing and the customer goes, oh my God, oh wow, you've totally got it. And you know, at that, at that moment that you've made a personal connection. Um. It's easier think, for you I, if I you're... Think the, I, I think what you're saying is that, and this I, I wholeheartedly buy into this formula, is that when you have leadership, and actually I would encourage other people throughout the, uh, the hierarchy to do this, personal brand humanizes the company. It's, it's the only way okay. to do it. At bottom line, it's the only way to do it. Um, and and it, it's, it's, it's the only way to resonate with the people ultimately you want to speak to. Right. And that's been quite sort of, sorry to say, but that's been like obvious to me for years, but I keep on meeting friends who are like CEOs or executives and they're like, oh no, like I put that on Facebook or I put it on Instagram, LinkedIn isn't the place for it. And I'm like, listen, you got to know what to share and how much to share. And it's all about cadence and like, you know, how personal am I going to be and when is the right time? And, you know, it's not quite so straightforward, but this is, this is the most important place that you need to, to show your human face, you know, because otherwise it's just a big plasterboard of very serious, rational, businessy things happening. And the personal is what's going to make you stand out. And particularly so, if you, particularly if you have a very, very purpose-driven business, Right. Like what could be more important than than talking about, you know, why this is important to you and to your team and this is why we come into work every day. You know, it's no use having that up on your about us page and then it's business as usual, selling product when you're on when you're on LinkedIn. Um yeah. So I agree. So look, totally. coming coming full circle as we and parting thoughts for our listeners. <laughs> um for those for those for those companies that are perhaps early on in their um, development and they can't yet afford a Guy Gordon, um, what would you say would be the sort of parting thoughts around how they should initially kickstart thinking about their own brand strategy um, to, to leave them with that takeaway, Guy? Um, well, I tell a lot of companies particularly early stage companies, like you say, ones that don't have, you know, great resources at their disposal, yet they don't need branding at all. What they do need, they do need to be different. You know, different is better than better. They need to focus on, they need to work out, okay, what is it that we want to say? And what do, what do our audience need to hear? 
um, they need to work out what their what their purpose is. I think more than anything else, um, and then think about how to make that relevant and interesting to everybody else. Because particularly if you have your own company, you've got your nine to five. What you're doing right now is the most important thing for you, right? That's your bread and butter. That's what you're not just doing nine to five, but you're thinking about all the time. It's probably not what, it's definitely not what other people are thinking about all the time, mightn't even be thinking about it at all. So it's about, it's about sort of weaseling your way into the parts of their life or the times of day where they are considering it, you know, where they are thinking about it. Um, and really to work on what your, what the, what your organizing idea is, if you were to What's your early is on time? What is it really about? Like, what's the core of what you're dealing with? Not about your own product truth. That's pretty easy to do. You can write, you can write descriptive blurbs and um, things about what it is you're selling. But think what it, what it stands for, the significance and the impact of it, and focus your comments on that. And the biggest thing and the easiest shortcut to take is to tap into something that people already know to be true. It's a lot of people think, Robert, oh, we need to work on clever, clever copy. We need to have something that sounds really cool or, you know, that's got like a double meaning to it. Um, that, you know, do on your own time. That's just self-indulgent and it's not really going to help your business. What you need to do is to tap into things that people already know to be true. Enough of this sheet. Early is on time. Um, and that's going to that's gonna like shortcut and bypass a lot of the heavy lifting you have to do in marketing because you're not there to demo or to convince or to show case studies you're cutting through to something that somebody, the person you want to reach out to and touch and move and motivate towards action, something that's already been percolating in their mind or their heart for a long time. And you're now coming and they're going to think, oh my God, finally, a brand that gets me, a brand that understands me, that knows how I feel. And that you do not need to hire anybody for. You don't need to spend money on branding. You don't need a logo for it or anything. You need a bit of empathy, a little bit of wit, and the balls to talk in a way that none of your competitors are, for sure. Well, Guy, you've definitely had the balls to, sport, to speak on this podcast, uh, perhaps more than your competitors <laughs> might. Um, it's been <laughs> enlightening and enjoyable, um, as I knew it would be. Um, this is your first foray into audio and video, and I think uh, um, you did spectacularly. So, Guy Gordon brand strategist, storyteller, and all-round mensch. Thank you so much for being on Coffee with Curtis. I've enjoyed it. I've learned, as always, when I speak to you. So uh, I really appreciate you giving us your time and uh, sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, wasn't as bad as I thought, like most things aren't. Now, the question is, am I, gonna, uh, am I going to like listen to all of this again when you uh, post it? Should I chicken out or should I actually listen to it, Robert? Really uh, well, actually, I have a rule. I tend not to listen back to uh, any of my podcasts. It's far too embarrassing <laughs> to listen to yourself. No. Put it out into the uh, the, 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 the stratosphere there, and uh, whatever happens next, happens next. Great. So, I thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coffee with Curtis. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow and subscribe to stay tuned when we release future episodes.